Welcome to the podcast that demands ambition, passion, and courage in order to succeed in this mission called life. All you have to do is just pass your limit. Go beyond your restraints by embracing the physical, intellectual, and emotional suck that life will throw at you. I'm your host, Ugo. I do not claim to be the subject matter expert, but I will share my experiences and I'll ask my guests to do the same. The discussions will be guided by honesty and civility. Some episodes will have guests, but most of them will be me and you. No excuses accepted here, people. None. I'm excited to get after it. So without further ado, let's go. My guest today is Lieutenant Kina Pak. She is a lieutenant in the United States Navy with over seven years of service. She's a clinical psychologist and a medical service corps officer. It is my pleasure to have her on the Pass Your Limit podcast today. She is so knowledgeable, so I will not waste any time. Ma'am, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you for being here. Um, without further ado, let's just hop right into the questions. The first question is, can you give my audience some context of your story? Where are you from? And what led you to the military? Yes, of course. Um, wow, we jump right into it. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so uh, as, uh, as you said, um, I'm uh, Lieutenant Keenan Pack. I'm uh, basically uh, a psychologist uh, working in a uh, medical facility. And so um, I uh, joined the Navy um, back in 2013 because uh, I knew that I wanted to do something uh, in the clinical psychology, but I wanted to do it in a, an exciting context. And I was you know, looking for that uh, adventure that we, I think some people associate with uh, military service. So. Um, I grew up in Colorado, um, mm. right outside of Denver, uh, in a town, Aurora. Um, went from there to college um, at uh, University of Pepperdine in uh, California. Uh, right after undergrad, I moved to New York City to do my master's degree in counseling psychology, um, and that was at uh, Teachers College, Columbia University. Uh, after that uh, moved again to uh, uh, Las Vegas, where I was uh, working at a uh, in inpatient psych hospital, as well as uh, doing a little bit of uh, sports psychology research at UNLV. Then uh, that's where I was recruited into the Navy um, through uh, the Uniformed Services University uh, accession program. Um, and, and from uh, Vegas, I moved over to Bethesda, Maryland, uh, the Walter Reed campus, where uh, the Uniformed Services University uh, is uh, housed, and uh, did my uh, clinical psychology doctoral program there. Um, finished up with a year of internship at uh, Naval Medical Center Portsmouth. Uh, and then after I earned my PhD, I uh, was uh, PCS'd to 29 Palms, the uh, desert oasis in <laughs> yes, Southern <ma> California, <laughs> and got to uh, got to work with some uh, Marines out there. Uh, then after uh, 29 Palms, um, here I am at uh, Naval uh, Hospital Rota. That's awesome, awesome story, awesome continuum right there. And uh, just a follow-on question to that: so, 
as a clinical psychologist, are there many clinical psychologists in the Navy or like what's the size? Yeah, so um, there are um, probably, I'd have to go back and check the numbers, but somewhere around 200 of us. And that doesn't mm. include, uh, I mean, that, that number actually includes uh, many who are in a training pipeline. For example, uh, USIS, you know, takes uh, four years to uh, go through uh, that doctoral program. Wow. And so really, you know, uh, in every cohort, there's only two members. And so, you know, we're, we're looking at less than uh, 200 active duty uh, Navy clinical psychologists split between both um, the care for Marines as well as sailors. And so, you know, we're not we're not a very large community. We are a pretty large community as far as MSCs go, um, but we uh, also have a, a pretty large job when you think about uh, just the combination of uh, the uh, United States Navy and the United States Marine Corps as our uh, as the the group that we're we're trying to help. Awesome, awesome stuff. And uh, for my audience, uh, MSC stands for Medical Service Corps, and uh, that's a subspecialty in the Navy. So you can have uh, MSCs. You have the JAG Corps, and um, you have the Medical Corps, and so on and so forth. So let's hop into another question and go right into the thick of things. Um, I always, on my podcast, try to be vulnerable. And I talk about mental health. I've talked about my own mental health and trying to overcome adversity. That's what my podcast is about. But having a professional here sitting um, across from me, I feel like I need to take advantage of this opportunity to actually understand <laughs> what exactly I talk about so I'm not just going off the cuff. So... Um, what exactly is mental health and how does it relate to depression and anxiety, in your opinion? Okay, great. Um, and, you know, I will also uh, put this out there as a disclaimer to anyone who's listening. Um, you know, today I'm on the show not as a representative of uh, the military, the DOD, or any uh, U.S. government um, uh, member or as a representative of the hospital. I'm on this show uh, as uh, with my own opinions, and so everything I'm I'm telling you today uh, is, is basically you know based on my personal experience and my uh, expertise. Uh, and it's not to uh, be construed as anything that is uh, uh, owned by the government. Correct. Right? Correct. So that question about mental health and uh, anxiety and depression. So you know we, I think a lot of people uh, you know forget that health itself you know they they generally are thinking about things like physical health like um, you know your blood pressure levels your heart rate uh, are you sick are you um, are you in uh, a good weight uh, standard for your age and for your height and you know people oftentimes neglect the fact that uh, the brain is uh, directly connected to the body um, without our brain, we essentially wouldn't have a lot of uh, just our automatic functions. Uh, and along with that, um, our mental health, I think, is, is best looked at as our sense of emotional and psychological well-being. So I split that out because a lot of times, you know, um, there's there's the emotion side of the house uh, where uh, it's generally our sense of, you know, how we are feeling about things, right? Our moods and um, our uh, social uh, bonds and you're connected with others. Right. 
but then there's also uh, this other side of mental health, which is also the cognitive side, like how we're thinking, how mm. we're functioning um, from a like brain and neuroscience perspective. So, you know, I want to kind of parse out that like the neuroscience, the neuropsychology, you know, that is also a very distinct piece of, of mental health. But, you know, I think a lot of times when we think about mental health, we're thinking more about that social and emotional connectedness and well-being and and with depression and anxiety, I mean, we're looking at two of the the most uh, common um, sort of, uh, I guess, terms as we think about, you know, what is uh, afflicting a lot of uh, Americans and, and uh, individuals worldwide. Um, but they're also kind of catchment terms. They're not necessarily clinical diagnoses in themselves. If someone has um, a major depressive disorder, that is specifically a clinical diagnosis. But someone can experience periods of depression or depression in response to uh, various life stressors that doesn't necessarily meet criteria for a clinical diagnosis. And of that's natural. Depression. And that's natural. Like everybody goes through those spurts, right? That absolutely. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and so you know, really, and that's where it takes, um, you know, sitting down with a professional, talking to your primary care physician, uh, or talking to a mental health professional to really tease out, you know, is you know, is what I'm experiencing. Um, is that going to be uh, a clinically diagnosable condition, or is this something that, you know, maybe uh, maybe part of something I'm going through and, and will resolve uh, more so on its own? Um, obviously, uh, with depression, you know, people think about uh, sad or low or irritable moods, um, losing interest in things that like they enjoy doing, like hobbies or activities, um, changes in sleep and appetite. Uh, and sometimes um, is linked with increases uh, in thoughts of like death or dying. And with anxiety, you know, we're looking at more uh, sort of this general uh, physical sense of uh, jitteriness or restlessness, mm. uh, worrying, difficulty controlling, um, you know, that, that racing thought. So it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you have a condition, but it is something that, you know, can be improved uh, through some personal and... Uh, personal work and maybe some professional intervention, whether that be, you know, psychological talk therapy or, or, or um, pharmacotherapy, like uh, with the assistance of a medication. Gotcha. That's so much that you said there that uh, I'll try to unpack a couple of things. So, and um, you talked about depression and how it can like lead to possibility of talking about physical harm or personal harm. Mm-hmm. Is there like a connectivity or intersectionality where you have to have, I think I've heard this before, where you have to have the means of hurting yourself, you need to have an episode of depression, then when everything interconnects, then it could trigger something like a suicidal event or something. I don't know if that's, um, I'm not a professional, but... Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you really look across the data, um, any really, you know, practically all mental health conditions increases the risk for um, a suicidal ideation or suicide attempt. Gotcha. Mostly because it increases uh, a person's uh, personal suffering, right? And a lot of times um, suffering is something that someone is trying to end um, when they um, are in this in this period of time when, when they may be considering um, suicide as a means to uh, ending that suffering. Um, 
However, uh, it doesn't necessarily, someone who has depression or anxiety is not necessarily going to uh, be suicidal or uh, attempt to self-harm. And sometimes um, those diagnoses may increase the risk, but it doesn't necessarily mean someone is going to act on those risks. So as you mentioned, uh, there's ideas of uh, plan and intent, like how uh, severely or strongly does someone want to go through with it, and do they have specific uh, methods or means that they have already worked out in their mind, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where we increase um, our concern and surveillance of that individual and, and, you know, uh, seeking professional help at that point would be almost... um, necessary necessary right, right? because right. we're not not everyone's trained and equipped with uh the tools to to ensure that someone will be safe right awesome answer and uh i guess at this point i could share with you because i've shared with my audience before so in 2014 i was going through an, um, a divorce it was a very hard divorce for me lost my kids and i had actually attempted suicide in 2014 and i'm sorry to put this on you right here but you just said a lot of things that triggered that uh it's a good point to talk about it but like i guess my question from there is is there a recovery period after if someone does try to take uh go go through with the action in my case i was just dumb that i didn't have any i didn't have the weapon off safe but maybe i was smart to have it on safe and nothing happened but after that it's kind of like a light bulb moment i was like what are you doing you know trying to recover then went through the process of actually knowing who I, or trying to figure out who I really am, what's important to me, trying to um, serve others, things to that nature. But my question is, after something like that, where you have maybe an episode or an event, is there a way for people to recover? Or is it always you, once you do it, you're likely to attempt it again? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if that makes right. sense. Um, and I think that, uh, I think you know, uh, thank you for, for sharing your personal uh, experience with it, because I think that it actually does capture, um, you know, both aspects, which is, yes, absolutely, anytime anyone goes through an intense personal event, uh, whether it's something else, like you mentioned, the divorce, and, right. and how difficult that was emotionally, as well as um, something more uh, maybe acute or, or critical, like a suicide attempt, Absolutely, there is a stress on the body and on the mind that I think uh, necessitates um, some period of recovery, gotcha. right? And when we look at the the research, uh, the data shows that you know the first uh, month really after uh, an an attempt mm-hmm. um, is a very highly risky time because uh, for some individuals, you know, when they survive. Uh, a suicide attempt, they uh, go through periods of, uh, you know, wishing that they uh, did not survive and, and, and go through uh, plans mm. to try to attempt again. That's yeah. actually, the first 30 days is is a highly uh, critical window for a lot of healthcare providers to be monitoring and checking for that. Um, at the same time, uh, the uh, emotional and personal recovery is very individual, right? That you know, as people um, go through this process of, of understanding, you know, why this happened, what mm-hmm. happened, and come to terms with, you know, still being alive, you know, they have to, uh, you know, personally unpack for them uh, the significance of that, the meaning of that, and and maybe um, 
you know, for some, they bounce back extremely quickly because they may have the thought, wow, that was, that was not a good idea. And right. I'm so glad. <laughs> that's what happened to me. I yeah. was like, that's a crazy thing to do. I'm so glad that, right. you know, that, that, that I didn't go I scared myself. Yeah. Like, you know, I was like, wow, I could have missed out on so mm-hmm. much, but. And yeah. so, this, you know, for, so it really just depends on the person, like what, what exactly happened, the aftermath of it mm. and whether, uh, they, uh, really, you know, regret, um, you know, having gone through that because then, uh, they're more likely to actively and proactively engage in measures, uh, oftentimes to, um, try to prevent themselves from going down exactly. that thinking uh, exactly. again. I love that answer. And that's a perfect segue to my next question. What role does isolation play in mental health? Yeah, so, you know, I I saw, you know, I think right now, you know, during this time of COVID and a lot of social distancing and a lot of restriction on, um, recommended restrictions on number of people we should be socializing with or contacting, I think this is a very, uh, you know, pertinent question for, for everyone. And I think, you know, it really you know, we don't have uh, the research yet, right? Because we're still going through it. Right. Um, and so a lot of the research that comes from this um, actually comes from uh, the field of uh, loneliness study and, and social isolation that uh, more generally we face in society. And so let me just kind of provide a few definitions, right? So social okay. isolation, um, that's defined as an absence of social contact. Uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's not on purpose, right? Like sometimes we say, hey, you know what? I just need to have a, a weekend alone. And, and that is something that when we're choosing for ourselves, um, it can be very refreshing and reinvigorating because uh, we are perceiving it as a choice. Right. Now, a lot of times for people who perceive it as not being their choice, this can lead to loneliness. Now, loneliness is an individual's perceived level of isolation or whether they feel a level of satisfaction in their connectedness. And so mm. just kind of digging more into some of the uh, research on this, uh, Dr. Uh, Holt uh, Lundstad at BYU, she's a professor of psychology and neuroscience. She saw, she defined that, um, that loneliness is is expected at certain intervals in our lives, right? Mm-hmm. Like when we move or go to a new place or maybe start a new job or we experience, you know, the death of a loved one or a divorce. And those are those are considered reactive loneliness situations, right? That we're responding to a situation. Um, and because we know that being socially connected to others is you know, a fundamental human need, really, um, you know, and it's crucial to our well-being and survival. Mm-hmm. It's really important that we don't fall into a state of chronic loneliness. So Dr. Louise Hockley, uh, who is a psychologist at NORC, uh, which is a research arm at a University of Chicago, she defined chronic loneliness uh, as a result of uh, emotion, lack of emotional mental and financial resources to get out and satisfy our social needs Mm. or a lack of social circle to provide the benefits of connection. Um, And so when we fall into this more pervasive sense of loneliness, um, there's been some, or isolation, right, that leads to loneliness. There's some physical outcomes, right? We talk about uh, st- like isolation as being a stressor 
for the human condition and the human body. So when we have more stress in our body, mm -hmm. it tends to affect our sleep quality, uh, that we don't fall asleep as easily or wake up a lot in the middle of the night. We may have feelings of depression. We may also notice some of these cognitive changes like impairment in our executive function, and this may be uh, seen in some uh, neuropsych testing for when they did these studies. Um, for older people, you know, we may see uh, a quickening or acceleration in their cognitive decline and increased risk for dementia. Mm. Um, cardiovascular function sees a hit as well as our immune function. And for every race, and depending on every, and regardless of health condition, it has been also linked to premature death. So wow. loneliness, you know, definitely has a global effect on the body. Um, one of the thoughts is that when people are not socially connected, they may also fall into some unhealthy habits that then, you know, help accelerate some of these uh, physical symptoms that I've described. Wow. Whew. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, not to, you know, not to make it sound like an end all be all right, because right. as we as you know, as we all know, like with these situations of reactive loneliness, Eventually, you know, we, we start connecting with our neighbors or we find some friends at work or we uh, find support and recover from a divorce and, and maybe find love again one day, right? Right. That these situations, including the sense of loneliness and isolation, you know, that doesn't have to stay that way. Um, when the researchers looked at uh, older adults, uh, because they are at higher risk for um, impaired uh, functionality, so if they're not driving or as ambulatory, they may have a harder time going out and, and doing socially connecting things. Right. Um, they found that when they started uh, a longitudinal study, so this could be over several years, those who started out as lonely, uh, over time when they had... Um, more socialization, uh, they had better health and had a much better uh, odd of subsequently recovering from this sense of loneliness. And so, you know, I just really want to um, emphasize that, you know, as we're going through uh, this pandemic and we as uh, maybe more younger, healthy, capable, uh, functionally adults, you know, we need to find ways to, um, you know, mobilize our social connections in, in new ways uh, without increasing the risk of uh, transmission of this disease um, so that we can really stave off some of these uh, long-term effects that we have yet, you know, to come see the fruit to bear um, this early on. Gotcha. Awesome, awesome answers. Thank you so much for sharing all this detail. And um, I know this is making a lot of people better. And uh, I want, just want to thank you. And you, you talked about mobilizing our social connection. I've never heard it said like that. So that's that's a new thing I'll add to my toolbox as I talk about. So, And uh, I want to ask you about the positive side of things. How do people start on that journey to improve their mental health, in your opinion? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that it comes from a few different places. Like, you know, I want to I want to kind of backtrack and, and talk a little bit about that social connection piece because um, oftentimes, you know, we find that social connection is, is uh, part of 
a healthy recovery to um, many diagnosable mental health conditions. And it can also be um, a prophylactic or help prevent the development of mm. a mental health connection because, or sorry, mental health diagnosis because that social connection is such an important part of our well-being. Now, you know, I know a lot of people are, um, you know, connecting now online uh, through Zoom and and uh, what what uh, Hockley found in her research is that older adults actually who supplement their real life connections with people mm-hmm. uh, with, you know, FaceTime and Skype and all these different avenues for technology right. uh, to connect, uh, they do much better uh, and feel less mm-hmm. lonely. Uh, now, the problem is sort of this, uh, this trouble zone we get into with younger adults is that sometimes when we replace real connections with online relationships, that we don't have like the depth and the familiarity and, and true sense of connecting with others. And then we fall into the social comparison um, mentality where we're looking at others and thinking, oh, they have it better than me, mm. um, that that actually ends up uh, sometimes harming uh, younger people's mental health with social media. So I do definitely want to encourage, you know, to to others that when you are consuming social media or using technology to connect, that, you know, you're not viewing it as um, a point of uh, coming from the perspective of have not, right, but looking at these relationships as uh, things that we do have and that we need to um, continue to uh, nurture in order to keep that connection feel strong. Um, the other things that we can do to help our mental health is really look at um, how we talk to ourselves. Mm. Really, our, our inner critic is, self-talk. Yeah, is, can be so painful. And similarly to what I was just saying about social media and like this uh, mentality of, you know, uh, they have it better than me, you know, we can start looking at our isolation and uh, looking at coming up with theories or reasons why, like, oh, I must be lonely because, and then if we fall into this category of uh, self-deprecating thoughts or negative Mm self-talk, you know, how we address that is is an important part of keeping ourselves mentally healthy and mentally resilient. Like, they found that a lot of people who deal with loneliness, you know, come up with uh, these beliefs that, oh, other people don't like me, mm. or I'm not valuable, or, you know, they they talk to themselves in such a way that then their mental health actually degrades. Um, but when we identify that we're having these types of thoughts and really challenge them, you know, that falls into something that uh, may uh, need a little bit of coaching from, um, from a mental health uh, professional to assist with, but cognitive behavior therapy is an intervention designed to really help challenge these these negative thoughts we have about ourselves, right. so that we don't um, fall into this despair mode uh, about either our isolation or any situation in our lives. That that the more we self criticize, um, and we can catch it, and then we can kind of temper it with more balanced thinking. It doesn't mean completely, you know, flipping the coin and, and looking at it from the view of rainbows and butterflies, but right, really just right. finding a more fair assessment of our situation that that can help uh, alleviate a lot of the distress and uh, emotional consequences of these thoughts. Yes, that's awesome stuff right there. Because I, I speak to the four tenets of mental toughness. 
I don't know if you've heard about them, um, positive self-talk, uh, visualization, arousal, control, and um, goal setting. Mm-hmm. So as you were talking, I was like, I got so excited right there because I'm like, it's, it's, impor- it's imperative that we kind of talk to ourselves and gauge things in perspective. And you brought up the media, social media piece. And I sometimes find myself in an argument with someone. I'm like, I don't even know this person. This person is a stranger. <laughs> However, like, words matter so much. And I get so... Worked up. Worked up, right. That's yeah. the, I get so worked up, then mm-hmm. I have to, like, take a step back, talk to my wife, and she's like, why do you care so much? Like, you don't know this person, but it affects us so much. And I have daughters, and I'm always cognizant of the fact that one day they'll get on Facebook, get on Instagram, and when they start looking at other people, most times they're not real. You know, like mm-hmm. what they're putting on social media is not real. Mm-hmm. Then people start thinking, like you said, and it starts affecting them and the loneliness. So thank you so much for sharing there. And I'll see if I can get you to share a little bit more here with my next question. I ask all my guests this question. So anything you can think about, and it goes like this. What's the most uncomfortable thing that you've ever done? And how did you, or I'll say it like this. What's the most uncomfortable thing that's ever happened to you? And how did you overcome it? Anything you can think of. It'd be school, be personal, anything. Mm, uncomfortable thing. <laughs> Boy, I mean, I could come up with a litany of examples. <laughs> but, I mean, uncomfortable. So, you know, what's interesting is this is going to sound like very uh, small to some people. But, you know, for me, it was a very big deal. So, I was in a, I was in a situation where um, I was... Uh, uh, sort of in a, a conflict with someone uh, at work mm-hmm. and um, you know my and this is again you're only hearing my side of the story right so my right, perception right. could not be uh, you know 100% accurate to the whole story but you know my perception was that this person was um, speaking uh, critically of me uh, to people who had uh, some control over uh, my my fate, right? Mm. Like these were like uh, you know my supervisors and things like that. Well, right, right. Well, I'm you know sitting in my office like seeing patients, and you know I really don't have the liberty to kind of uh, have the time to to uh, to uh, de um, what is it uh, to challenge these beliefs or perceptions, right? Right. So uh, I had some some people come to me and let me know that this these kinds of things were being said or these kinds of things were happening and I honestly I I sat with it for way too long uh, nearly probably a year oh, wow. uh, of just kind of sitting with it realizing that it was not getting any better right I finally had to ask my supervisor to sit down with the two of us and mediate a conversation about how uh, how her words were affecting um, me personally but you know, my concern as well about, um, your career, well, my career, but also like how her perception of me was, uh, maybe also, uh, causing her also undue stress because Mm, it may have been, uh, irritating to her if she chose to believe that certain things were happening for certain reasons. Right. Anyway, we had a, we had a very long, like two hour mediation, uh, and basically the, the, the supervisor was just there and didn't really, uh, talk too much it was right. really a, me and her you know sat and really talked it out after that honestly um somehow uh, that uh really just altered uh, our dynamic and i think we just aired everything out um said our apologies and made a commitment at the end that hey 
these were some of the points you made uh, and I will work on those and these are the points I made and, and you commit to working on your end and we're going to work better now together. And then after that, for uh, the rest of our time working together, uh, I would honestly say we didn't have any further issues. Like we really um, used that space to, um, to work through that conflict and come to a, a mutual agreement that we really just wanted to, to work better and that common goal really helped us you know keep our uh, biases and our personal beliefs in check and it also I think helped us to know what the other person was actually thinking and believing to help sort of uh, explain um, what may have been a misperception right wow that's that's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And um, I know yeah. it sounds super small because like other people maybe overcome like some really, you know, uh, no, no giant obstacles. No, no, don't was, don't say that because what I heard, what I heard though was um, the ability to put your ego to the side and have that conversation and sit down because I struggle with that in my life right now where I feel like if people do certain things, I'm I'm part of the cancel culture right now. It's like. I just want to protect my mental health and my peace. I'm like, you know what? Just go have a great life, and I'll see you in the afterlife. I just continue about my business and just mm-hmm. continue to be positive. But so for you, it takes a lot of courage, you know, to step up and then say, I want to have that conversation and reach out, then actually have a supervisor mediate. I think that's, that's, um, that's something that people can pull from and apply to their lives in several situations, in a plethora of situations, in my opinion. So... Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'll I'll pull some tools again from there and put in my toolbox. Yes, you keep giving me more in this episode. Thank you. Uh, so next question is, um, are there ways to identify friends, lovers, or coworkers in distress? And if they are, how so? You know, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's very important because I think um, as someone who's in mental health and, and works in, in the behavioral health and mental health field, uh, I, I think we recognize that a lot of people want to sort of say, oh, this person's in distress, like, let's get him over to a professional. And while that may be um, necessary in certain situations, I think a lot of times we forget that, you know, having one appointment every once in a while is not going to replace the countless number of hours that they're not sitting in front of that professional, right? Like their, mm. their day to day is still going to be impacted by the people in their immediate surroundings. And so, you know, whether they're identifying distress or uh, helping with coping with that distress, um, distressing situation, um, friends and family are a vital piece to, to recovery. Mm. So, um, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, if you start hearing things that are concerning, um, that maybe, you know, someone makes these kind of jokes or side comments about, um, maybe harming themselves or harming somebody else, you know, that we don't just laugh it off. And sometimes we have to say, Hey, you know, Uh, is anything going on? Uh, but also, you know, to really know your people, right? To know your friends, know your family, that if they're going through situations like financial hardship, legal hardship, um, that we recognize that there are some obvious risk factors, right? Like the two I named, in addition to various life stressors, like, uh, you know, the death of a pet, uh, illness of a family, illness or death of a family member, um, that all of these, um, small stressors can kind of also pile up like you know 
uh, you know, this bill or, or that coworker at work or supervisor at work, like that compounds with some of these bigger life stressors. And so really knowing your family and friends and knowing what they're going through uh, is one way of just kind of recognizing some of the warning signs or risk factors. Um, warning signs being more like signals that someone might be sending to you kind of to say that they need help, they need support, um, like making those jokester side comments or maybe even saying, hey, you know, I've been having more thoughts about uh, suicide or, or I think I'm, you know, maybe I need to go talk to a professional, you know, I'm, I'm going through some things. You know, when you hear those things to be like, hey, you know, I hear you, I see you, I support you. Uh, what can I do, you know, uh, to better support you? Uh, because, again, like, once they're done with that session with that professional, right. uh, you're, you know, you're that person who's there to, to see them at the other side of it. You know, so it's, it's important to also, you know, if someone has any concerns to, you know, go ahead and, and look at some reputable organizations. Like, um, there are various, obviously, you know, the internet is a very big place, but right. there are some organizations that are, uh, better at disseminating like research and fact-based uh, information like the American um, Association for Suicidology, the American Psychological Association, Psychology Today, um, and uh, the uh, Suicide Prevention uh, Lifeline or the hotline number. Um, you can find all those things online. It's, it's important to, to go to these reputable organizations and sources for your information. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, ma'am, for that. That That is great stuff. And I took, I took a couple things away from that. Friends and family are vital. They're the vital piece to the recovery stage. And you're only around your professional for so long. My wife is a couple's therapist and um, she always tells me she tries to say less and let the couple speak and mm -hmm. just kind of guide the situation because mm -hmm. ultimately she won't be in that marriage. They mm -hmm. have to they have to fix it themselves. And like they tell us in the uh, Navy as officers, um, how do they say that nobody controls your destiny like you, you do? Um, nobody cares more about your career mm -hmm. than you do, so you should care a lot. So if I so, uh, put that, apply that to families and life, it's more it's on us, not necessarily the professionals. Professionals are there to guide us. Mm -hmm. Then us as family and friends need to play our part and uh, identify the risk factors, identify life stressors, warning signs, or like signals, like you said. Mm -hmm. So kind of like jokes, it's important for us to be attentive to those mm -hmm. things. So, And also, so, you know, we're the ones who recognize when someone uh, is uh, sort of isolating uh, mm -hmm. themselves. And it may be that, honestly, we may recognize that certain individuals are being uh, picked on or or bullied or being um, negatively treated by their peers that we intervene and we step in and, and we, you know, first of all, you know, let the people know who are, who are being, um, uh, more harmful with their words that, Hey, you know, that's not, that's not healthy. Uh, that's not a, a good for this environment. That's not welcome here and really stop that kind of uh, harassing bullying behavior. Right. But also, you know, for some individuals, I go back to the isolation piece you know, they may be stuck in this negative self-talk spiral as to the cause or the reason for their, uh, for their loneliness. And so, you know, just kind of being uh, supportive of that person and, and uh, you know, listening to them 
and and uh, f you know filling uh, in some of those negative self talks with hey here you know here are some other reasons or here are some more uh, positive aspects about you right. um, can really help sort of um, you know uh, as as our a peer or a friend uh, jump in uh, when someone may be isolating by by choice because they believe these negative things about themselves or their situation not According necessarily that they're that confidence right right mm. right wow awesome stuff ma'am thank you so much we have put out a lot of information here you have not me i just uh just been on the ride and listening and i'll listen several times to this one in closing, do you have any final remarks to share with my audience, anything? Actually, before that, I want to ask you, to something you just said um, with the bullying piece. Kids, what can we, uh, like, I'm a parent, like, what can we parents say to our kids if, I mean, my daughter or my son comes back and says, well, I have this friend that is bullying me and saying all these negative things to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, do we, as parents, just try and find that other kid's parents or just just try and build the confidence of our kids how do we respond Ooh, to that well opinion? i will i will not pretend to be uh, <laughs> a pediatrically trained right, uh, right. psychologist like that is not my area of expertise at all okay. but you know i think when we come down to sort of like the basic um intervention ideas for bullying and for just because it can happen to adults too, right? Right, right, right. That, you know, that we help our kids find a way to, um, you know, communicate, hey, you know, that that's, that's not appreciated, please stop doing that. And if that doesn't work, you know, they need to bring it to an adult's attention, whether it's the parent or the teacher, right? Mm. And then, you know, the teachers and the parents may, uh, may eventually, you know, sort of um, have a meeting with the, with the parties involved. Um, if that still doesn't really stop it, you know, it's it's really um, one that, that's too bad, but also right, it right. is on the, I think the role of the support people to to help uh, foster and build the self confidence of that person who is being bullied awesome. um, by uh, interjecting with these, uh, you know, uh, interrupting these negative self talks, uh, interjecting with positive uh, affirmations and and. Uh, pieces of gratitude and, and fostering and building the social support around that child so that um, the bullies, uh, while they may continue to target, that that target is much more resilient to I their, um, against their attacks. And That's so, what I'm yeah. talking about, ma'am. That's that passion limit. I love it. You just talked about resilience. This thing's got me excited. I'm trying to stay composed. <laughs> but um, in closing, do you have any final remarks for my audience, ma'am? Um, gosh, I wish I had something prepared, but I mean, no, I mean, I think, uh, I honestly, I feel like I talked a lot, but yes, you know, I, I think the, I think the important part, uh, that I would emphasize for anyone is just, you know, to be, uh, to be more kind and compassionate toward uh, yourself, mm. uh, being compassionate toward others, honestly, uh, for some, you know, comes easier, um, but really, it's the way that we talk to and treat ourselves that ultimately uh, manifests in, in our uh, mental well-being. And so I, I feel like um, if we can just be more mindful to, um, to those words that we are saying to ourselves and, and also be more, um, be more accepting you know, of other people's uh, situations and our situations that... And, and rather than resisting and constantly battling with ourselves and with others that, you know, we can uh, create 
a much more um, harmonious uh, psychological environment in our own bodies and that that can you know pay dividends as as uh, you know more people pick that up so um, I definitely uh, encourage that um, as well as uh, you know if anyone's ever um, tried uh, mindfulness meditation um, that there are many tools out there apps um, uh, YouTube videos all sorts of tools to help people sort of foster that more um, compassionate approach to themselves and others so check that out awesome thank you so much for a phenomenal episode and you saved the best for last right there just be mindful of how you speak to yourself oh i love it i love it so much thank you ma'am and uh with that we close the passion limit podcast in this episode and talk to you soon all right thank you so much